Welcome to Ag Future presented by Alltech. Join us from the 2022 Alltech One Conference as we explore opportunities within agri-food, business, and beyond. I'm Tom Martin for the Alltech Ag Future podcast series, and I'm here with Philip Hallhead, founder, owner, and CEO of Norbrecht Genetics Limited, based near Lancaster in the United Kingdom. Philip founded the company to improve the beef on dairy offerings for global dairy farmers. And he's with us today to focus on beef genetics and how genetics play a role in the sustainability of dairies. Welcome, Philip. Yes, good afternoon. So tell us about your work. What does Norbrecht Genetics bring to the cattle industry? Well, a little background, if you will, um, if you'll just forgive me for a second. Please do. Um, really interesting, passionate story that is I'm a third generation dairy farmer at Norbrecht Farm. And it's the unique uh, ability, of, I think, of the family and myself to understand dairy farming. I am a dairy farmer myself. I'm uh, and also unusually in the beef space. So we've bred uh, beef cattle. We have a small Aberdeen Angus herd, a small British blue herd involved across multiple breeds of beef cattle uh, over 25 years now. And it's that ability to understand what the dairy farmer requires, how the industry's changed. Uh, sex semen technology has rolled into the industry since the year 2000, and it's taken a number of years to develop and become popular and successful. And on the back of that, beef genetics have become uh, imprinted into the dairy herd. And we talked exclusively uh, or extensively, sorry, over the last two days about dairy beef. And it's the ability of the dairy cow and its miraculous uh, uh, genetic uh, potential to produce volumes, high volumes of, of luxurious, um, highly nutritious milk, uh, also producing now a beef calf. Um, and ordinarily, we would require some replacements for our dairy herd. Around 25% a year would be replaced by, and the, the sex semen does that for us. And that leaves a lot of cows to carry a beef calf and the income stream, critically, for the dairy farmer that that provides. And the sustainability piece, which is a big piece of all tech this week. We're talking sustainability, longevity, and ultimately supply chains. So how can beef genetics improve uh, a dairy cow? Uh, so it's not about improving the dairy cow, forgive me. It's more um, a case of producing beef from the, um, from the dairy herd. And what the supply chain and ultimately the consumer enjoys is a consistent product. So if we imagine um, for a minute the 1,000 cow dairy herd, the 500 cow dairy herd, uh, that beautiful Holstein cow, which carries little flesh. It's using its um, metabolizable energy and, and its reserves to produce that milk. When you cross that with an Aberdeen Angus, a British Blue, a Longhorn uh, beef bull, you get this almost perfect beef animal that you can then follow through rear to uh, possibly 12 months or a two-year-old grass-fed beef animal that then ultimately ends up on somebody's plate. And I've talked today uh, during my piece at Alltech about food with a story. And that's the exciting piece in the future is providing red meat to a consumer who wants to uh, enjoy a consistent, tasty, meat-eating experience and understand the provenance of what they're eating. I'm a layman, so um, this is a layman's question, but is beef on dairy a relatively recent 
opening up of the industry? That's a great question. And if we look back to the UK, I've been doing this business now for over 25 years. And it, it's um, beef on dairy has been something that's been in Europe and, and in the UK particularly for a long time. Um, certainly we could look back 40 to 50 years and there's been a, a small percentage of beef uh, in the supply chain coming from dairy cows. But as I explained previously, it's now accelerating and it's accelerating all around the world with the advent of sex semen allowing uh, just the very best cattle genetics, the very best dairy cows to be bred for replacements on that dairy herd and allowing beef semen to be used across the rest of the herd. So how is beef on dairy changing things in the dairy and the beef industries? Well, I think, again, at the cutting edge of this and at the stark reality of sustainability in, in Europe and in the UK, uh, we're seeing what you call cow-calf operations here in the US, what we would call a suckler herd. Keeping one cow for a whole year just to produce one calf is questionable at best. Now, there are opportunities in more arid areas, in more rugged areas. We think about Montana and, and states uh, where, you know, vast ranges of grassland, <clears throat> there's little ability to produce um, milk in those areas. So the cow-calf operation will survive and it will be a major part and an important part of the beef industry. But for the supply chain, for the retailer, they it's almost been like a gold rush uh, for dairy farmers to um, buy into the whole supply chain piece. There's Those herds can provide big numbers of very consistent calves that then go through the chain and they are finished um, critically quite fast on um, reasonably intensive diets and Therefore, that sustainability piece, again, is ticked and, um, and the metrics are met that um, we're looking to, we're looking to, you know, lower inputs. In, um, we have a phrase in the UK, sustainable intensification. So how has this impacted the, the economics of the business? So for the, the cow-calf operation in the UK and in various parts of Europe now, it's catastrophic. Um, and that's not just the beef on dairy story, that's just the economics of keeping a cow for a whole year to produce one calf. Uh, we also think about um, not every cow has a calf every year, so there's there's an impact of that on profitability. Subsidies in Europe, as you may well be aware, uh, has been a big piece of that pie. Subsidies now getting withdrawn, going into environmental schemes. Um, some of these farmers, their land, their this rugged sort of more arid areas, uh, planting trees, thinking about the ecology, and actually de stocking so no sheep no beef cattle uh, and again driving that uh, change for getting the beef from the dairy herd uh, and accelerating the change and the profitability and the dairy is is it's an extra income so it it ticks all the boxes and beef farmers are finding new ways to operate uh, and looking at new environmental stewardship schemes when selecting beef bulls to breed to dairy animals, which breeds are the most in demand and, and why? Well, in the UK, it's the British Blue. It's the quite extreme double muscle animal that um, was created from the beef shorthorn many years ago. Went to, the beef shorthorn was taken out to Belgium. The myostatin gene was identified and this incredible animal, which is double muscled, was developed called the Belgian Blue, now the British Blue. That, when you cross that onto a Holstein dairy cow, it gives an easy calving, a short gestation period, but 
the ultimate beef cross dairy animal because of the two extremes. You're putting a Holstein cow together with, with the animal and the breed that has the most amount of meat and the efficiencies that are around that, the killing out percentages we talk about in the supply chain. Those British Blue Cross Holsteins would typically kill out 5 to 10% uh, more carcass yield at a set given time. Um, those sort of metrics hooked onto price um, create a, an added value um, both for processor and retailer. And those are the important percentages that we talk about. But also today I've talked about the Longhorn. So we think about Robert Bakewell, who is the, the godfather of cattle breeding, uh, born, well, he, he was born in the early 1700s, but about in 1760, I believe, he took over his father's tenanted farm in Leicestershire and developed this longhorn breed, which was originally a, a cart animal for, for ploughing and for doing all sorts of strange things in the fields as they did back then in the 1760s. But today, it's an animal with a great story. It's a wonderful beef animal. It's got that uh, the longhorns, as the name suggests. And when we think about the higher-end consumer who um, is maybe eating less red meat, but they want meat with a story. And so they go to Chicago or they go to New York or they're in London for a high-end red meat eating experience in a restaurant. They know they're going to pay a whole heap more for that that uh, choice compared with chicken or, or a vegetarian dish. But they're prepared to do it because they're reading about the Longhorn, maybe about Robert Bakewell, maybe about the fact that it was produced in the Lake District Fells. And it creates a lovely story that they're comfortable with the provenance um, and, and the, the consistency of the product. It eats well. And then that nice bottle of Malbec, Argentinian Malbec to go with it. So... Uh, you touched on this earlier, but uh, to kind of zero in on it, what, what is the role of genetics in supporting the sustainability of a dairy operation? For me, I start, the, the three pillars are planet, people, and profit. Um, sustainability can be uh, talked about in many different formats. I think it, there's a need to talk about the sustainability of the planet, of course, and that's a mission that uh, farmers, we are the solution, we're not the problem. And I think that narrative is something, it's, it's a story, we have a great story to tell about how we manage the landscape, uh, produce food in a sustainable manner, and it's efficiencies. So it's producing food in a more efficient way. If we can use less artificial fertiliser, um, think about um, a, a greater output from a similar area. Think about the genetic potential of crops and animals. That, that's a wonderful story. But around sustainability um, on a dairy and the beef piece, if we can get that extra income from selling beef cross calves from uh, dairy cows, it puts more finance on the table. It gives hopefully a slightly more profitable business. And the third piece of that sustainability is people. So therefore, we can employ the best people in ag. One of my big things is encouraging young people to come into agriculture. There's an amazing and an exciting future for many, many young people. We need people, um, certainly a lot younger than I am, to teach me about technology and data and some of those wonderful tools we're going to need in the future. So uh, attracting people, protecting the planet and creating more profit at farm level and a sharing of the profit. I talked about that this morning. In the past, I think it's been a bit disproportionate. We've found uh, retailers taking a disproportionate uh, margin for some of these food products that the farmer produces. Uh, possibly the processor also trying to capture some margin and it leaves the poor farmer quite often with either a negative margin or a very small margin. So we have to 
um, close the supply chains down. We have to have a more open dialogue and the sustainability comes from that. Buyers tend to dislike uncertainty. How would you rate the predictability and the consistency of the beef on dairy concept? We heard yesterday from the Texas uh, University uh, professor about uh, the scientific evidence around beef uh, across dairy animals. There's a hormone, uh, well, I say hormone, it's a natural hormone. This isn't an artificial thing. Um, around dairy cows that uh, gives extra flavor and consistency and there's a certain pack size as well. So in the UK, I'm not too au fait with the USDA uh, standards, but uh, in the UK, typically we're looking for a 350 kilo carcass. It's a standard pack size. And when I talk to retailers, they try and fit a pack size to a price. So typically in the UK, you need a 499, 4.95, £4.95 price tag. Just below the £5 level, people are happy to pick that up. So the, the thickness of the steak they're collecting off the shelf, the, the look of that uh, steak in Europe, we would have less requirement for intramuscular fat. Um, whereas in Asia, the Wagyu breed is very popular and it's, it's quite a greasy meat-eating experience, but um, one that's sold as, as the ultimate meat-eating experience. So really understanding your consumer, really understanding what it is you're trying to provide, for whom, and at what price level. You collaborate closely with supply chains, and in these times that we're in, many of the world's supply chains are backlogged, even overwhelmed right now. How are supply chains that are essential to beef and dairy operations performing in this environment? Certainly, there's some challenge around carcass balance. So we see some of those prime cuts, the fillet, the fillet steak, the uh, you know some of those higher end cuts are needed and and provided. We've just talked about that in some of the higher end restaurants and a wealthier consumer. The danger is that a bigger proportion of the carcass is devalued into the minces and the the smaller primal cuts that just end up in in a really discounted format, and that's a challenge for processors. But we've got a slightly bigger challenge, and I think that is one of supply and supply disruption. So we are seeing record prices um, in the auctions for cattle. We're seeing um, record demand, um, and we're thinking. The, well, I'm certainly looking and thinking globalization, whilst it's still alive and well, it's possibly, um, you know, being looked at as uh, not the solution for the future. And there's a there's a sort of the realization and some countries are actually preventing exports of food products. So that creates disruption in supply and availability. So there's an opportunity for farmers to capitalize on that, but not in a greedy way, not in a, not in a um, you know, we need these supply chains to run efficiently. We, it's a very tight margin business we're all in. Um, but we also have to capture more value because as, uh, just in the same way that beef is now raising, uh, the prices are at a record level, all our commodity products that we're buying into the farm are also, if you think about fertilizer and wheat and, and some of the major products that we buy into our dairy units into our beef supply chain, um, dairy, uh, beef finishing units, they, they are seeing record price increases. So unfortunately, we're all just moving up a level um, to, a, to a higher reality of, of, of expensive um, food. Do you, in your work, do you follow consumer trends? And, and if you do, what are you seeing happening out there? Yeah, very much so. The early signs are of a distressed consumer. Um, energy and food uh, poverty is going to be on the increase. And the worry there is 
Not really too much for a European, uh, UK consumer and some of those wealthier, more developed countries. But I think my worry is for less developed nations around the world and and the the potential for literally malnutrition and starvation on a scale we haven't seen or we thought we'd solve to some degree over the last 10 or 15 years. And and, um, I think that's really back on the table and it's going to give a lot of people a lot of thinking time. The Arab Spring, of course, was caused by disruption to food supply and increases in commodities and and it wasn't at anywhere near the levels we're seeing now, you know, two and 300% increases in, in some food staples. So there's a political instability that's uh, going to be we're going to have to watch and be very nervous about but ultimately we can also turn and be positive about where we are um as farmers had said it before we have got the solutions we've got the tools we've got the knowledge we've got the education we've got a wonderful story to tell and i think we have to be brave about doing that and making sure that um, investment is continuing into good production systems that are sustainable for the planet and ultimately feed more people. All right, that's Philip Hallhead, founder, owner, and CEO of Norbeck Genetics Limited. Thank you very much, Philip. Thank you very much. For the Alltech Ag Future podcast series, I'm Tom Martin. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>